0: My boyfriend loves this pig, and he often asks me why you hate this pig. Antonio just wants to love you. He misses you. Megan, I miss you. Oh, oink, oink. God. Well, he has a Spanish accent, but I'm really bad at Spanish accent. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> How are you doing me saying that? Like, like, okay. Like Spanish man accent speaking in English, you know? You know what I mean? Megan. You are the soul. You are the light in my life.
1: (laughs) Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name's Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana.
0: Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today we're going to learn about a Southern African-American folk artist who lived to be 101 and the first woman president of the American Psychological Association.
1: So with your president of an American society, that means that we are both back in the United States today. I know, it's very sad. I mean, you could have gone abroad. That's what I've done the last three episodes. Yeah... I had fun, yeah. On my end, we've gone abroad the last few episodes, and today I'm coming back here to the United States to cover someone who proves that women artists live forever: African American folk artist Clementine Hunter,
0: who lived to be 101. Oh my darling, oh my darling, oh my darling. Clip no, no, mm-hmm. no. Okay,
1: really, really.
0: Does okay? No, because how? Okay, did you not? What was the last time you saw Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind?
1: You know what? I've actually never seen the movie. I know it's on Netflix. I just saw it on there the other day.
0: I don't know who you are. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Hardcore Henry? <laughs> that sounds like a porn.
1: <laughs> you know what? It does. But it's a pretty bitchin' action movie. Uh,
0: is it? Is it uh, Z rated? <laughs> oh my god! We have to make you not make you we have to gently insist firmly insist that you watch eternal sunshine of a spotless mind
1: yeah yeah yeah. all right well i'll watch that and you can watch hardcore at henry and then we'll be even
0: fine i'll watch the yeah, porn just,
1: it's not a porn it's
0: not a porn <laughs> i mean it might
1: be out there somewhere but that's not what's important it's a really cool action like shot from first person perspective yeah you don't care all right moving on <laughs> So our artist, Clementine Hunter, who lived to be over 100, see, she saw some shit in her day. Yeah? Also, anyone who lives to be over 100 or just to 100 or even near 100, like, you're gonna see a lot of change during your lifetime.
0: For the better?
1: The slice of American history she lived through, I mean, it is is—it is kind of crazy. She lived through the post Civil War like Reconstruction era, where like previous slaves and their families were like just trying to get by, like like her own family, all the way up to like the Reaganomics of the eighties. Holy crap! Yeah, yeah, and like putting it another way, so like Clementine lived through the invention of the gramophone, up to Apple's first Macintosh computer.
0: Oh my god! It's
1: wild to think just between that those two particular things, just how much happened light bulbs and airplanes and world wars and the cold war it just it's pretty crazy and she she saw it all And now, okay given things within her life they were fairly quiet so she was born down in louisiana and throughout her life she never actually left the state
0: okay that's cool yeah
1: so for all these changes occurring throughout the world like didn't necessarily immediately impact her with her kind of more rural life So she was born all the way back in 1886. Jesus Christ. Like I said, Louisiana as one of seven kids in a Creole family. Creole is kind of, it's intriguing because it's this very unique American blend of like the deep South African and French cultures. So Clementine grew up speaking Creole French.
0: I don't know the difference between regular French and Creole French. Is Is it dialect? Is it? I guess I assume it's dialect.
1: Yeah, it's just the blend of other um, influences with American and then Spanish. Kind of like Spanglish? Um, kind of, yeah. It's just its own very specific geographic creation of French. Okay. Yeah, I don't have anything to kind of like, I don't know of anything comparable to it. Yeah, it's its own thing. Yeah, no, and it's it's very uniquely American. So Clementine and her family, they lived in the oldest settled region of Louisiana, the Natchitoches Parish, and that is essentially like a county located like northwest of the center of the state.
0: Louisiana is the one that's kind of like a boot shaped. For those of you who didn't like pass your middle school geography.
1: Okay, we have some international listeners.
0: Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. They're out there. Okay. Yeah, the boot. Yeah. The boot of the man looking, looking to the east.
1: Oh, geez.
0: <laughs> yeah, so
1: they're living kind of in the center of Louisiana. And on both sides of her family, her grandparents were slaves. And the conditions that Clementine and her family were living in wasn't too different from what her grandparents went through. Oh, no. Yeah, it's, like, super shitty because at that point, like, slavery had been outlawed for over 20 years. And there's no movement forward. Not much. So what developed in slavery's place was sharecropping. So, like, after the Civil War, the South's economy, like, it just went to the crapper. Like, all their, their money, Confederate money, was completely useless. Cotton was completely devalued. So there's a bunch of landowner, landowners who need labor and a bunch of laborers needing work. And the land o- owners were like, Hey, we like literally can't pay you, but you can live on our land and work the crops and oh. we'll rent you the shack you live in and the farm equipment and even the seeds and you can just like pay us at the end of the harvest. Like we'll be even Steven, right?
0: Oh, okay. So serfdom. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Landowners would take their share of the profit, and then anything remaining, the family would keep. And it was often really exploitive. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of African-American families were taken advantage of and just further disenfranchised through sharecropping. Like, on one account, I read it wasn't uncommon if, let's say, like, if you had a bad harvest, okay, maybe you owe the landowners, like, $300. Well, adjust that for inflation. That could easily be ten grand. And then they just roll it into next year's. So essentially you just continually always own the white person money.
0: That's so stressful.
1: Yeah. I and mean, then here in America, like you you look at median family wealth, and in 2016, for black households, the average net worth is just over seventeen thousand dollars.
0: Seventeen thousand dollars? Yes so white households
1: 170,000.
0: Oh my god.
1: Yeah, so sharecropping was just one thing that contributed to these vast wealth inequalities that we are, that are still very present today because it was just a means for people to knock it ahead, like continually be taken advantage of.
0: Uh systematic yeah. oppression.
1: Yep. Her life, for the good majority of it, was just spent working out in the fields of Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. The story goes that she did go to school for about a week when she was a teenager, but she didn't go back after a nun threw out her meat sandwich on a Friday. Ooh. Yeah. You don't fuck with a meat sandwich. Well, for Clementine, in her words, she'd, quote, rather pick cotton than go to school. So she did just that, and because of that, she never learned to read or write her entire life. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And she she worked the fields, like, up into her 50s. Uh, During that time, Clementine's, like, raising a family. In her late teens, she met a mechanic, a Charles Dupree, and they had two children. He passed away in 1914 when she was 28. But she did remarry about 10 years later, a local woodchopper, Emmanuel Hunter. And she credits him with teaching her, she put it, American. Up to that point she only spoke creole French, oh. so marrying him, he taught her English. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she was like a super hard worker. So she said about the birth of like one of her kids. Quote, I picked cotton one morning before I born one of my babies. I remember how much it was. Seventy-eight pounds. Then I came home, called the midwife, and born my baby. It didn't worry me none. In a few days I was back in the fields.
0: Holy what? <laughs> yeah. She didn't even I- care. Holy moly. I mean, it was just
1: a matter of there's work to be done, and if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. <sighs> yeah, it's just very matter of fact. And that's how she is, or at least that's the impression I get about her, just in terms of everything. But holy crap. She's a very straightforward, matter of fact woman.
0: What a woman. Yeah. In Clementine's
1: early 40s, she switched from working as a field hand harvesting cotton and pecans to working inside the plantation house. The plantation that Clementine was living and working at, and this is since she was like a little girl, it was fairly unique. So in regards to all the other plantations in the area, like the work and harvesting, it was the same, but the difference came in the plantation owner. 1899, the business owner who owned it died. His son and daughter-in-law bought it. They renamed it Melrose Plantation. Fast forward to 1918, son dies and that leaves the wife, Cammie, in charge. And she's like, cool, cool. We'll keep the farming going, but I'm going to turn the big house like the main plantation house into an artist residency program. I yeah, no, I think it's really cool. She was a really avid collector of historical like folk art and furniture and handcrafted items from the region. And so like you can go and tour the plantation today and see all these items that she wanted to preserve, like the historical like artistic merit. So I don't think it was surprising that that was kind of a further outgrowth it was probably something she wanted to do for a while but the husband was like no 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 and then he finally died and she was like well yeah i will and it turns out that the wife cammy the plantation owner she's like riding this wave of the southern renaissance which i honestly didn't really know about Uh, it's a period in the 1920s and 30s of like this really creative southern literary growth so think tennessee williams and a streetcar named desire wasn't
0: that same time as the Harlem Renaissance, as well?
1: It was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Two completely
1: different things, though. But yeah.
0: No, 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 no. I'm aware. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, they both
1: kind of had completely different, like, contextual backgrounds. But I think what makes them coincide at the same time is just because there were such, like, economic and industrial and societal changes happening that facilitated these things. And so, like, the South is changing from, you know, kind of looking forward, becoming more industrialized. And so, there's kind of this shift out of this, like, post-antebellum period and attitude. And so, specific to the writers, like, they're looking forward to, like, the potential within um, the area they live.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Kind
1: of the uniqueness of the South. Separate, or at least moving on from the history of like the Confederacy and slavery. Yeah. And looking to like what it could be. Right. And I think that was a similar attitude within the Harlem Renaissance is, you know, specific to that that area what people are looking to achieve, like moving forward, like what they're capable of. But so it worked out well timing for Cammy because she had a lot of leading writers and also visual artists within that period come and stay at her her residency program and for her she was like yeah you guys can stay for like as long as you want like as long as you're doing creative work yeah for clementine i mean she's not directly involved in this artist residency program but she's working in the big house like so clementine she's immersed in this creativity but it's in like a second nature way Uh so she's not like directly interacting with the artist but since she's working in the house like she's seeing what's going on she's getting all of this like secondhand so there was a resident there, a Francois Mignon, who recounted in a journal entry about Clementine approaching him. So Clementine, she was tasked with cleaning a room after an artist had left a, a painter, Alberta Kinsley. And at this point, it's about like 1939, she's about 53, Clementine found some discarded paint tubes and she went up to Francois and she was like, hey, like I, I want to paint. And he was like, "Oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, here's some turpentine. Like, you know, here's like a window shade you can paint on. Like, have fun." Mm-hmm. And to his surprise, like the very next morning, she like knocked on his door again. I was like, "Okay, like I finished a painting. Like, I want to do another one." Oh, yeah. And he was like, "Oh, uh, okay. Let's let's get you some more material." Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's funny.
1: And that's. That's how it started. So from this very first painting, Clementine went on to paint thousands of paintings. It's estimated she did up to 10,000 works. From her 50s? She was in her early 50s when she started, when this moment occurred. Yeah. So for those of you that caught our Grandma Moses episode at the start of this season, like Clementine's story and her paintings are going to sound familiar because Grandma Moses was someone really similar she started painting, I think, in her um, late 60s.
0: I forgot about that. I forgot how late she was, how late she started. Yeah, and so Clementine
1: sometimes is referred to the Black Grandma Moses. Okay. <laughs> Even though technically I think Clementine was born first, but, you know, whatever. Yeah,
0: whatever. <laughs> what else?
1: Now, Clementine painted on whatever she could get her hands on. So, scrap wood, cardboard, bottles, plywood. And she worked in oil paints. And she painted from memory, creating these, like, nostalgic scenes.
0: Oh. That's the correlation between the two of them, because didn't Grandma Moses do the same thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All
1: that's, right. That's that's another, that's a very strong thing between the two of them. Yeah. In all their paintings, even though at this point, like, they're both painting in, like, the 1950s, because they do overlap. They're, none of them are painting, or neither of them are painting, like, power lines or cars.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: It's definitely a throwback for clementine's paintings what she's doing can kind of be broken down into the five themes so plantation life working in the fields uh black rural life she did flowers and birds some religious pieces and then also abstraction bit of an outlier yeah i was gonna say that's a random like <laughs> it is And uh, I'll, I'll give you the scoop on it in just a sec because okay. It is a weird one. So, and like similar to Grandma Moses, like they're both painting in like this loose stylized manner that like flattens the perspective. And you can think of it kind of like medieval tapestries that like stylize everything yeah. so they can fit it on to the piece. Like mm-hmm. that's what Clementine's doing. And she does do some uh quilting. And it her style like translates really well to, to fiber work. Okay. All right. Because she's using these like bright colors, but they're very flat. And so she's creating depth in the size of the objects. Not she's not really shading anything. Yeah, I was gonna say shading is not her thing. Nope, yeah. not at all. And she's for the most part doing these very like everyday narratives. So like working the cotton field, weddings and funerals and baptisms, and you know scenes from the Bible and then the still lifes of flowers that are they're really fun. And one thing that I love is that when she paints Jesus, she paints him as a black man. Yes. Thank you. And over the decades, Clementine, she does tend to repaint scenes. And it's fun to see how they kind of shift over the years. So there's one where initially there's like a mule pulling a cotton cart. And then later down the line, it becomes a giant chicken. I'm sorry. (laughs) And someone asked her. They were like, hey, Clementine, why did you paint a giant chicken pulling a cotton cart? (laughs) And she was like, hey, if it's any smaller, I couldn't pull the cart. (laughs) (laughs) Like, duh. (laughs) I love it. I love that sentiment. So she definitely worked humor into her paintings. Oh,
0: my God. Uh,
1: Like, and there's one recurring guy who's the overseer for the people working out on the fields. And she did not like him. So she made him the tiniest, childish-looking white man on a horse in her paintings. (laughs) Like she was just like, I don't fucking like you, and I'm gonna paint you really small, you little butthead. (laughs) And so she did. She did not make him an actual butthead. That would have been hilarious. (laughs) That would have been great. She might have thought about it. I don't know. That's speculation. (laughs) But so she had. She had fun. And then too, and like, because a lot of them are narrative scenes, like there's one where there's people outside of like a bar and there's a guy like down on the ground and he's been shot, but like the gun hasn't even been fired yet. What? So she's kind of like playing with the timeline, like almost like everything's happening at once too. Oh my God. No. So she's like changing perspective. And then also like in terms of the timeline of these narratives she's painting, it's like kind of an all at once kind of thing.
0: Wait, how do you? How do you paint a gun that hasn't been fired yet?
1: I forget if, like, technically the guy was still drawing the gun. The body language of the people being painted, it's like the person is still in the act of shooting the person, like bringing the gun up. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But yet the other person is still, la- is like, laying on the ground like they've been shot.
0: Tongue
1: out? Yeah. T- well, I don't know about the tongue out. Um. So Clementine, her humor definitely came across in her paintings, which is pretty fun. And she's doing all her paintings, like, in addition to her domestic work in the big house. And this is all while Francois was guiding her. And she also had the support of the plantation owner, Cammy. So one of her best-known works is this mural exhibited in what's known as the African House. And it's a traditional Central African-style house that was built by slaves in the early 1800s. I think it's one of the earliest examples of that architecture ever built in the United States. On the second floor of the building, Clementine has murals on plywood, and it's just like a tableau of life in and around the plantation. So it's like one of her her largest pieces to date, where she's got everything from a wedding to a funeral to a baptism to, you know, cotton picking all going on, pecan harvesting, Saturday night dancing. It's really just a snapshot. Of her experience, oh, yeah.
0: Oh, that's so cool.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of fun because she even like paints herself into the mural, painting the mural. <laughs> she's, I like her. <laughs> yeah, I know she's 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 fun, and it it was kind of a bummer because like researching her, there's really no first hand accounts of like how she felt about all of this and the work she was making and like how she was making it. So it's nice to have these, like, glimpses of her personality, like, through her paintings because her narrative kind of gets a little overshadowed a bit. There there were some exploitative practices, you know, going on. Yeah, a little questionable. So our guy, Francois, I hope I haven't been butchering his French name this entire time. He wasn't even French. I'm sorry. Yeah, super French name. Wasn't French. What, what was he? His name was actually Frank from New York State. What? But to get to the artist's residency, he created this whole persona, lied about who he was, changed his name, claimed that he studied art in Paris, and, like, that's just – that's who he was. What? Like, no, psych, you were actually, like, Frank from New York State. Yeah. So – Frank? All right, that is a little questionable. God damn it, Frank. Yeah. And there was this another guy, writer James Register, who was at the residency as well. So him and Frank – are, (laughs) (laughs) they're really credited with, like, marketing Clementine's work later on, but, like, they both have their own kind of questionable baggage. So, James, to get to the artist residency, he was like, yeah, 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 I'm totally faculty at the University of Oklahoma. No. No, he he, he was just a tech guy that worked there. What? Yeah. So, we've got these two men who facilitated Clementine's creative work, but little questionable as to why they're like motivating factors yeah. as to why they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, and which is it's pretty shitty because like we've seen that happen before, specifically with Native American artist Louisa Kieser, who we covered. Like she was also financially taken advantage of by those who are marketing her mm-hmm. art. Yeah, and it's it's the same with Clementine. So our our francois Francosis. I like googled how to say that name earlier like the more i say it the worse it gets <laughs> just come <call him> frank <laughs> i i know it's tempting so call him frank frank not francois yeah so it was it was the same with clementine so that like abstract kind of short period she had with her art that was because james was encouraging her to do that type of painting
0: interesting because i guess that was yeah. what was in
1: or something that's exactly what the art world 1930s, was 1930s
0: to 1940s
1: Yeah, going in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all about abstraction. And so he would like bring her these collages and then be like, you should totally make some paintings based off of these collages. And she just like, like, well, I guess I can try. Ah,
0: okay, But it wasn't what she loved to do. No,
1: no. And she stopped doing them after a while because she as she put it, she said they made her head sweat. Like she just that's not what she wanted to do.
0: (laughs) make her head sweat. Oh, my God. I
1: think just because the, like, d- depicting those narratives from her life came easy to her. I'm, yeah. Like,
0: trying to make these abstractions and to be like, what am I, like, Like, like what's what the is point? This? Yeah. Why am I painting this? Yeah. Yeah. Like. You know, that's, that's how Megan and I feel about abstract art most of the time. So we get it. We get it, Clementine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, her and, so Clementine and Frank, I mean, they were close.
1: They were even buried together Aww. on the same plot. Yeah. So Lee, I think they were good friends, but they kind of look at the public records, you're like, gee, someone made a lot of money, and it wasn't Clementine. Clementine. Yeah. Yeah. So out
0: of the like those
1: thousands of paintings she did, it seemed like she received like very little compensation. And towards the end of her life, like finances had only modestly improved. Like she went from living on the plantation in most likely previous slave quarters to a trailer home. Oh my God. Yeah. And I mean, she was able to cover like her funeral arrangements and she was really proud about that. But the majority of her life, she was living in poverty. Hmm. Yeah.
0: That's got to be an interesting thing to be proud of. I mean,
1: I don't know. That seems normal to me. Like, to, you know, to have that responsibility of like, oh, I've taken care of this. My family's not going to be burdened with it. Like, I've made all my arrangements. Death comes to everyone. I don't want
0: to think about it. That's why I take happy pills. Oh my goodness. Just just keep going. I, I'm good. I don't need to talk about it. Nobody needs to talk about it. I'm going to hide now behind this pig. Goodbye. This wonderful pig. God, woman, put the stained glass pig-shaped lamp down.
1: I don't care for it. I don't like how it looks. I think it's silly. Who would ever say to themselves, I need to make a stained glass multifaceted sculpted
0: pig as a lamp? You know, it doesn't matter because I love him. It's not his fault. He exists, Megan. Put him out of his misery.
1: Death comes to all. All right. So meanwhile, Clementine, while she's living in poverty, like she's becoming a bit of an art star. People, they love her work. And to an extent, I'm sure people love the idea of her work. Mm -hmm. So like here we've got like a disadvantaged African-American artist creating these like idealistic art like about her life. And at the time, like, it allowed the art world as a whole to, like, skip over having to address, like, these very heavy and very real topics of racism that shaped Clementine's life. Because, you know, you'd be like, oh, she's just painting these really great, pretty pictures of, like, everyday life. And, oh, that's so quaint. That's just so sweet. And, oh, just good old days.
0: Mm.
1: Like, you c- that you can kind of see how that would allow people mm. to just skip over these, like, underlying topics. And yeah. And this is, this is within the 1950s.
0: Oh, of course, because everything was supposed to be perfect in the 1950s. Nothing was wrong in America in the 1950s.
1: (sighs) No, of course not. Oh, my goodness. But so starting in the 1950s, her art was shown nationally, uh, more so on the East Coast. She did have works at museums and it was it was kind of shitty. So like like she was the first black artist to have a solo show at the Delgado Museum of New Orleans and she also had a solo show at a local college, the Northwestern State College in her hometown. Like, she couldn't go to that solo show during normal, normal hours because it was segregated.
0: Mm.
1: What? So even though it was her solo her show. show at the college, what? she had to go in after hours to see it.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. That's, like, complete shit. You'd think there'd at least be some sort of, like... Like, what did these people think that they were walking into?
1: Work to be consumed, but to not actually face any racial realities about it and the context of how it was made or viewed. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, like, after these rounds of shows in the 1950s, things did kind of slow down in terms of what Clementine is showing up until the 1970s. And that's when the art world is impacted by the civil rights movement and suddenly feminism and black art movement. Like, that's hitting mainstream. And so there's another resurgence of interest in Clementine's art. And this time, it's, it's more of a deeply felt actual, like, appreciation for her work. Okay. And so it's shown on the East Coast, on the West Coast. There's traveling shows, uh, museum, public and private collections. Mm. One of those collections being in Washington, D.C., where, you know, just the president, Jimmy Carter, saw her work and was like, hey, Clementine, you want to come visit the White House? What? Yeah, yeah. And she said, quote, if Jim McCarter wants to see me, he knows where I am. He can come here. (laughs) 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 She's great. Clementine is great. (laughs) And things did kind of come full circle. So she was awarded a Honorary Doctor of Fine Arts from the previously segregated Northwestern State College, the one where she couldn't see her solo show alongside white people.
0: Oh, trying to make amends, huh? Talk about, you know, 25 years after the fact. Jesus.
1: 1987. 87. She was only born in 1886. Clementine passed away. She was 101. And she she worked up to her death. You know, not even slowing down when she developed really um, serious arthritis in her hands. So, while she was initially giving her her paintings away for free, and, I mean, eventually she sold them for about a quarter, you know, today they're selling for thousands of dollars. Jesus. Like, the shitty thing is, there's really no public evidence that her family has financially benefited from Clementine's artwork. Oh. Still? They didn't? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, going back, it was, you know, our Frank and... And he got all the money and his family got all the money.
1: Yeah, it was those two guys, like Frank and James, who were kind of like her PR agents, and it was more so Frank. And he was the one who who really did facilitate these connections with showing her work in like museums and collections. Right. She didn't really benefit from that. No. So who was?
0: Exactly.
1: So I mean I don't I don't deny that her and Frank might have been like really good friends, but I think one of them was benefiting a little bit more from the friendship than the other.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's the fucking worst.
1: Yeah, which is super shitty. But, I mean, also, just from my casual armchair research, like, this is the public information I came across, so I don't know if maybe secretly there was something done behind the deal or, you know, behind the scenes and we just don't know about it. I mean, Clementine, she didn't set out to make money from her work. She considered her talent a gift from God what happened is just emblematic of like the continuing financial disadvantage of black americans you know yep super shitty uh but you know despite that whole racial wealth gap and disadvantage Clementine hunter i mean she was a leading folk artist and she really enjoyed painting and she offers a really unique glimpse into her period of american life
0: yeah for sure
1: i mean the historical value alone I think one reason people were really attracted to her work is that it's just because traditionally that was a subject matter and an artist that was definitely not represented,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially within American history
0: yeah,
1: American art history. So that's Clementine Hunter. Cool, cool. Yeah. The third in my, like, not feel so – Your trilogy? Your saga of sorrows. <laughs> it's not sorrows this shit is real my sorrows of crippling depressing realities and she saw a claim within her lifetime and that's more than other people can say yeah that's true and it sounds like your person she saw a claim during her lifetime she
0: had the exact opposite life of clementine
1: oh my god is this
0: gonna be another story where she like only lived to be 23 no no she lived a little bit she lived a little longer than that okay okay a little older than that uh she had just a wealth of opportunity okay cool yeah that's the good type of problem to have yeah 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 she did meet you know she did meet sexism along the way but uh even then she still had more people in her corner than most so all right Her name was Mary Calkins. Not
1: Mary Poppins.
0: Not Mary Poppins, Mary Calkins. That's a C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Her mom's name was Charlotte. Her dad's name was Wolcott, W-O-L-C-O-T-T. That is old school. I've never heard that before in my life, but I'll take it. And of course, he was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, Sure. Yeah, why not? One of five children, and the entire family was just really close. They navigated their lives with each other in mind. They were like a unit that never left. So, 1880, they all migrated this entire unit to Newton, Massachusetts. And the family will live there for literally ever. Okay. (laughs) Forever.
1: Are they, like, the type of family who, like, all build their houses on the same plot of land together.
0: No, I don't think they went that far, but it's kind of like where they were based. So like your family in New York.
1: Well, yeah. I mean that's that's normal for most people. I don't know what that's like. Okay, well you also come from a military family <laughs> and you're also a first generation American.
0: So you've got some variables that a majority <laughs> people
1: do not have.
0: I don't understand. It's <laughs> I really don't understand my last boyfriend my ex he was like north philly and his family like lived on the same block <laughs> like he specifically lived with his grandparents and his mom and his sisters and then like down the street there were uncles involved there were cousins and i was yeah, that's not very confused <laughs> that is not like uncommon
1: at all you know maybe maybe not in a close proximity like that but like you know you all live in the same town like oh i'm gonna go over to my aunt house it's like a five minute drive or something
0: i don't understand but <laughs> anyway <laughs> dad valued education Walcott, right and he set hers and her siblings education up so that they could eventually get some higher learning so thanks dad
1: i mean that's a big deal that especially to huge. be considering that for the girls in your family in the late 1800s
0: it gets even bigger megan Yeah, yeah. How big does it get? Not as big as a giant chicken. (laughs) Pulling a cart of cotton. Pulling a cart of cotton.
1: Oh, my God. I really love that visual.
0: (laughs) So, 1882, she entered Smith College as a sophomore studying classics, Greek, and philosophy. Okay. That's what a lady should focus on in the late 1800s in the United States at that time, right?
1: Maybe some embroidery thrown yeah, in too.
0: It was an acceptable field of study, you know. She graduated in eighteen eighty four, and she took a graduation trip with her family to Europe. So she studied more classics there. Life was good. When they got back, her dad set up a job interview for her at Wellesley College. It's an all-women's college, and it's basically in Newton, so she doesn't have to go anywhere. Okay, right. It was a Greek tutoring position that eventually turned into a three-year teaching position. And in those three years, she was being watched. That
1: sounds kind of creepy. Okay. Specifically,
0: she was being watched by a professor in the philosophy department that was like, hey, you should teach psychology. So it was a new curriculum, not only in that college, but in most universities across the nation. Psychology as a science, it became a thing in 1879. Yeah, just in general, its existence
1: is still fairly fresh.
0: It's it's so fresh. It's a baby. It's a baby science. So instead of shying away from something new, she accepted the challenge. But she was like, yo, I'm going to need some psychology classes to know what to tell my students. Let me do this for about a year.
1: I mean, that's only fair.
0: Yeah. I, you I know? like someone who's
1: like, hey, if I'm going to be a professor on its subject, maybe I should at least know take it? a class on it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because, like, I don't, I don't know what this philosophy She was like, you, I like the way you teach. Teach this new thing. What? Excuse me? Sure. Yeah. But she took it on. She was like, all right, but I have to go study first and then bring that back here. And they were yeah. like, yeah, okay, that's reasonable. So <sighs> problem is that she was a woman. There weren't many psychology programs to choose from. There were even less programs that included lab work with the theoretical lectures, and most of them were not about women taking their courses. Universities were not about having her study in the same room as men, or at least the president of the specific university that she was looking at didn't. So, you see, she had her sights set on Harvard because it was one of two colleges with a lab program in place for psychology, and it was the only one closest to home. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which, yeah, I mean, that that sounds totally reasonable.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's a reasonable woman. Absolutely. Dad steps in with the president of Wellesley College. They both petition for her to be accepted in order for her to even sit into lectures. And they were like, sure, but she can't be an official student. She can't be registered. She has to be a guest. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even at the same time, if it also gets you in, like, I know.
0: Okay, fine, whatever. It gets more ridiculous. When she gets there, she sits on lectures given by two of the leading philosophy and psychology professors in the country. But the president is still straight up like, you're only allowed to sit in on these things. However, her professors were both immediately taken by her. Academically, not physically. Okay, okay, good. I mean, you never
1: know with these stories
0: sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it gets weird. This is not one of those times. Um. They loved her brain, and they were constantly berating the president of Harvard to allow her to become a student and obtain a degree. He only, uh, he still, like, maintained his his stance. He wasn't going to let her in, so.
1: I mean, it would make him
0: look bad. However, we're going to take a step back and talk about one of the men who was on the Harvard president's dick about getting her a degree. Okay, cool. He was her main mentor, and his name was William James. He was the first American psychology educator ever, and he's literally referred to as the father of American psychology. Psychology is new, yes? The first wave of psychology was created by a dude in Germany named Wilhelm Wundt. That just
1: rolls right
0: off the tongue. I know. His, this particular wave was called structuralism. So the thought was that if that if other sciences could break their domains down into smaller fundamental pieces, then so could psychology. They wanted to isolate and study the fundamental parts of the brain. The way they did that was with introspection. So, i.e., look at this picture of a duck. How does this duck make you feel? Oh, jeez. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> Is this going to be my new dark matter?
0: <laughs> I think so. I really a do. Duck? Why a duck? <laughs> it was, I don't know, it was anything, really. Um, but of course, of course the problem with structuralism was that it was too subjective. There was no real way of quantifying what the hell was happening in our brains. this approach. You were just asking people and they were like, this duck makes me feel sad. Why does this duck make you feel sad? But how does that make you feel? Oh, it's so bad. Um, How does that
1: make you feel? Yeah, that's just a vicious cycle.
0: Oh, God. So in walks William James, and he's like, Yo, I don't care what these fundamental sections of our brains are. I just care about their function. And he was heavily influenced by Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. Basically, he was just putting around on daddy's money, and he found himself on a boat to the Galapagos Islands and noticed different parts of the islands all had finches. But over the time like that he was there, the offspring of the finches started sporting different kinds of beaks, depending on where they were located and what they were eating. So the beaks were their tools to get their food, obviously. And the finches with the most useful beaks in that area over time were able to procreate because they were able to survive long enough for them to get some, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry. The beaks of those finches, the ones that were able to get some, would basically be the winning gene. They would pass that on to their finches. And the finches themselves were able to evolve and adapt based on the beak that worked. Mm -hmm.
1: And then once he figured this all out, he was like, great, lovely. I will eat them now. Did he? Yeah. Oh. I didn't get to that part. Yeah. No. Charles Darwin, like, (laughs) ate anything and everything. Like, the more exotic, the better. What? Are you fucking with me right now? I'm not fucking with you. (gasps) Why do you know? (laughs) You all need to stop and go Google, and we're going to add... I'm going to add in a little bing. Okay, so I shit you not, Charles Darwin made an effort to eat every animal that he came across and discovered. And that all started in college, where he was a member of the Glutton Club at Cambridge University in England. And their whole thing was just basically eating weird animals. Basically, his frat bro club members were more interested in getting a little schnockered rather than focusing on what they were actually eating on. So when he was studying abroad, he really went above and beyond eating weird stuff. But this didn't misguide his scientific studies. On one account, a cook was serving up a rare bird, like actually rare, not like cooked rare, and realizing it that it was actually a fairly rare bird that he'd been searching for for months at that point charles Darwin was like oh my god everyone stop eating it and collected what was left of it as samples so yeah charles darwin came he saw he researched and roasted his way into science
0: (laughs) i can't
1: can't. i'm not fucking with you (gasps) oh
0: no yeah Oh, the more you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, Art Artman Studios, the guys who do Wallace and Gromit, like they made a movie where that was a subplot no. of the movie. Oh my God, I love Charles ha- <laughs> Darwin eating the last dodo.
0: <laughs> Come on. I mean,
1: cartoons teach you everything. Oh my and God. And they're British, so they know what's up.
0: Oh my God, Megan. <laughs> oh, fuck my life.
1: I'm okay. Oh, Darwin. Charles Darwin, theory of evolution with his finches. I mean, it was only kind of used for some racial nonsense and eugenics later down the line. But, um, so yeah, so how does that come into play with your not Mary Poppins?
0: You know, Mary... Mary Calkin, yeah. So while Charles Darwin was focusing on physical characteristics of the evolved individual, James, her mentor, was focusing on the things about us that were less tangible most animals have smell sight hearing we have those things but there's something like more a connection that starts with those senses and morphs into things that separate us from the rest of the animal kingdom and he felt that the best way to to look into this was to establish laboratory work in a science that was full of people who hated lab work because they're psychologists and philosophers they hate lab yeah, work. Yeah. yeah. Mary was all about it. She studied under his guidance and ran with it. They quickly became equals, and her lab work created several foundations for psychology. To the point when I say they were equals, they would, like, sit by the fire and just talk psychology out. That's what they spent their time doing. Right. And it, like, it initially started because he wrote the first book in psychology, like, so, well, not the first one, like, in existence, but, like, the first one in America. You know what I mean? American one, yeah. Yeah, an American yeah. psychology book. And, like, he obviously taught it to his students, and then it it started from her reading and asking questions via that, and then them just, like, going back and forth, like, with her mind and his mind. So it was very cool. So after that, with her second mentor, Edmund Sanford, she focuses on dreams. And they were their own subjects. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, I, don't under, I don't understand psychology, but it's a science, so here we are. <laughs> so for months, they would wake themselves up at different parts of the night and immediately write down their dreams. So she recorded 205 of them. He recorded 170, and they found that dreams included a ton of emotion. But she would go on to write that the dream merely reproduces, in general, the persons and places of recent sense perception, and that it is rarely associated with that which is of paramount significance to one's waking experiments. experience. So... This is a huge deal because in 1899, Sigmund Freud was talking about his psychoanalysis mumbo jumbo and telling everyone that dreams were some manifestation of an unconscious desire and that everybody wants to fuck their mom. So it was rock star versus woman in the psychology world. And we know who won because we all know Freud's name and you and I and like 20 other people know Mary Calkin's name. So that sucks.
1: Okay, Milana, that just sounds like penis envy.
0: Of course it is. (laughs) Why else would I say it? So, that's okay, because she took a quick break to go back to Wellesley with what she had learned and created an entire psychology program. So, whatever. But later, like, maybe a year later, she decides that she needs to further her unofficial academic journey, and she's thinking about other places. But Sanford was like, don't go to Johns Hopkins because they're still not going to let you get a degree, but if you stay at Harvard... I know of a German dude that's coming over from Germany, and he loves working with women. Like, he's famous for, like, not giving a crap. His name is Munsterberg. He has a lab. Please stay. Okay, that name is awesome. And he's an awesome dude. So it (laughs) works. It does. So she stays, and she focuses more on dreams, but then she comes up with this absolutely critical theory on memory. So it's the paired association technique, and... Essentially, she paired a number with a color. Subjects would have to remember the number the color flashed at them was associated with. So subjects would have an easier time remembering numbers associated with vivid colors. But the real connection was with the frequency in which they were presented. So, like, practice makes perfect, that sort of thing. Okay. The key is that it's repetition and it's two things connected with each other. So it's major in education, psychology, and it's honestly how I remembered a good chunk of anything I have to memorize. So it's a tried and true method and, I mean, she's the one who came up with it. So 1895, she finishes up all of her PhD level work. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking all of the classes involved in getting a PhD and also the thesis and also the exams. Right. She... Passes everything with flying colors. And Harvard still says, no.
1: Oh, no. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know you started with that. And I was like,
0: oh, this is not going to end well. They're like, no, we can't. We can't do it. And, like, I mean, Ugh. even like, James, like, he was, he was so mad. He he, basically called her work, quote, the most brilliant examination for the PhD that we have had here at Harvard. Nothing. Ugh. Yeah, so let's – all all based off of her sex, so let's take a minute to mourn. Let's bow our heads. <sighs> it's – I mean, so, like,
1: somewhat really to know. When we're initially doing research, to be like, okay, like, who can I cover for the next episode? Mm-hmm. For as many people as we are able to come across, we're like, okay, we could cover them. There are countless more that just – like, we're not going to come across because they just never had the opportunities to Nobody pursue knows. their interests.
0: Mm-hmm. Because of,
1: you know – systemic challenges like that
0: huge roadblocks in place yeah yeah so she goes back to wellesley and is an associate professor of psychology and two years later she's a full-on professor and she's still all about her experimental work Mm -hmm. in 1900 she dives into the third point in her psychology trifecta which is the science of self okay so this will be your other dark matter head head headspace ready Uh uh-oh yeah because i have a quote (sighs) but this isn't the quote basically the science of self in psychology is what makes a person a person i think therefore i am like she honed in on the idea of multiple selves so the spiritual self the social self the material self etc etc the self is quote a totality a one of many characters and of many temporal signs. It is, secondly, a unique being in the sense that I am I and you are you, that no one, however similar, can take the place of you or me. Is, thirdly, an identical being, in parentheses, I, the adult self, and my 10-year-old self are, in a real sense, the same self, and yet is also a changing being, in parentheses, I, the adult self, differ from that 10-year-old self. Finally, the self is a being related in a distinctive fashion both to itself and, ex- and its experiences, and to environing objects, personal and impersonal.
1: It's just, I mean, y- yeah,
0: ex- exactly. I refer to her memory work, and I think everybody else does as as more. Mm-hmm. But like, this is um, her yeah. this is her philosophy background kicking in. You know what I yeah, mean?
1: Yeah, I just yeah, like yeah, Megan as the artist has an arch nemesis and like not only theoretical physicists sorry guys don't like you but also uh philosophers sorry i also don't like you go hang out with theoretical physicists because you guys are gonna be like bffs it's so bad i just i mean it's great that's cool i have like actual things to work on like concrete
0: things It's okay. I, I It just makes my brain hurt. It's fine. She she did her thing. And she did her thing to the point where, like, she was well-regarded by her colleagues. So, as in when 10 prominent psychologists were asked to rank their colleagues in a list of 50, she was ranked number 12, even though she didn't technically have a PhD. Yeah,
1: yeah but, you know, if you're a professor, you're professor. I think it really matters the type of work you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to throw out some art shade, like, real hard right now. There's a lot of artists out there with MFAs. Their work's not that great. Just because you have an MFA does not make you a better artist. You
0: you trying to find some more enemies, Megan?
1: Okay, no. Also, like, what enemies do I have aside from now the theoretical physicist and, like, philosophers? (laughs) I mean, really? Is that even that many people to start with? But no, you, you see that type of, like, elitism in everything and be like, oh, mm-hmm. just because I have a better degree or fill in the blank, I'm better than you. i be like, okay, cool. But if, like, what you're doing is still crap, like, it's still crap. Yeah,
0: that's still, yeah.
1: You just, you're better certified to make crap.
0: Yeah, basically. She was not certified to make crap. She was just herself. And five years after her science of self-work... She was named the president of the American Psychological Association.
1: Now, what what year is that putting us into? Because we're in, what, like the early 1900s at this point? Um, I believe it was
0: 1905. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty
1: impressive.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's intense. 1918, she becomes the president of the American Philosophical Association. Okay. And she was the first woman to do that, and not only the first woman to, like, have both, like, to be in both associations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and then she was also the first woman given a first American woman given an honorary position in the British Psychological Association. Oh, nice. That's pretty solid. So, so like over the pond, they were like, we like you. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they don't have an accent and they sound more like s- s- small dogs, but it's I fine. I'm just say little fairies or something. So 1927... Twelve Harvard alumni petitioned Harvard to let her have the goddamn doctorate degree, and they wouldn't oh my budge.
1: God. It's like what, <laughs> almost thirty years later, they would not. I budge. love how people are still salty about it and petitioning <laughs> and advocating for her.
0: I know. I know. That is great. I- I- <laughs> However, Columbia University would later reward her with an honorary doctorate, and so would Smith College, her her old school, from which she got her bachelor's degree.
1: I just, I really like to imagine the ceremony for Columbia, and they, like, have invited the president of Harvard, and he's sitting in the front row, and as they're handing over the honorary degree, just staring him down. <laughs>
0: We're going to honor the people who matter. <laughs> you get a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> so in her work, she wrote like four books, hundreds of papers titled things like The Self in Scientific Psychology, The Idealist to the Realist, and Mr. Musio's criticism of Miss Calkin's reply to the realist. So somebody read her her letter to the realist because she's the idealist. Yeah. And criticized her. And she was like, I read this and now I'm going to reply back. Okay.
1: So, what? scholarly, like, smack talk is the funniest goddamn thing in the world.
0: <laughs> I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't about to read 30 pages. Of back and forth between an idealist and a realist. One, because I don't have any time for that, but two, because I took a community college psychology course 12 years ago, and I'm not about to pretend that two days of studying Mary and her kind of psychology for this podcast would allow me to understand what the heck they were saying. But I imagine it was like something like a Facebook argument, but like if they were, you know, thought out with legitimate reasoning skills and held respect for one another.
1: It's just, (laughs) it can be really funny. I've got got a book on a collection of uh, essays on, like, theorizing power structures and how patriarchy kind of came to be the dominant um, power structure.
0: Right.
1: And there's one essay in particular that opens up and is is essentially like, okay, let me tell you why such and such theory is bullshit and, like, jumps into it. (laughs) And I was like, I love this. I love it. Because like you said, it's like a Facebook argument, but you're like, this is well thought out. (laughs) <laughs> this is well researched. I've got lovely citations in the back if I want to look further. Oh, God. It's, I like your, it's just a polite, salty tone that I'm like, I'm enjoying this right now.
0: It's insane. Even if I don't
1: fully, completely understand the context of
0: it. We know what she's thinking. <laughs> yeah. I know
1: scholars shit talk when I see it. Uh,
0: so, I mean, as far as feminism is concerned on her end, she wasn't. Actually, mad at the people who wouldn't give her a degree, she was thankful that they allowed her to sit in the lectures at all. However, she was still a suffragette, and she would go on to write about women in psychology and the woman's right to vote. Mm-hmm. There was one point she rebutted some—by uh, I say some guys. She rebutted Joseph Jastrow's bogus findings about how women weren't varied enough. So specifically, he had a group of men and women sit down and write down a list of words that they could just think of off the top of their head. And he looked at these lists and he was like, the word choice of these women are less varied than men. That makes them less variable in general and therefore scientifically and evolutionarily inferior to men.
1: Oh my god, my face right now.
0: I I know. So she had a female student, Cordelia Nevers, under her at the time and they both co wrote a response that was like, Um, we looked at those lists. They had some they had the same variability. Also that's subjective AF because how can you how do you what what makes and were choice variable i know i know but also even if that were true i'm unsure if what way the effects of these innate differences would actually affect the environment around us and how does that make them inferior yeah I
1: mean, never mind that statistically the men are most likely going to have higher education opportunities compared to the women like
0: exactly yeah like that's the first thing i went to like you're talking about the early 1900s Where women were expected to stay home and embroider and not have a real education and just get married and have babies. Of course, they're not going to have a full vocabulary because most of them didn't go to college. So, no. I know. I I was just like, excuse me? Like, these are the... No. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. So, finally, you're going to love this. She was offered a degree by the women's equivalent to Harvard named Radcliffe University. And she said, no. She was like, I went to Harvard. If I take this degree, it's telling people that it's okay to keep people out of a higher institution and to deprive them of the thing that they worked hard for based on their gender and I'm not taking it, essentially, is what she said. Um, I get it. I get yeah. it. Yeah.
1: You're right. Because it's, <laughs> it's all about a matter of, it's good optics she, for Harvard to be, yeah, to snub it yeah. further. Yep.
0: Yep. Nope. She's like, no, I don't need that. I didn't go to Radcliffe. I went to Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's okay, because she just hung out with her OG crew at Wellesley for about forty years until she retired in nineteen twenty nine. She never she left never left Newton. She was able to take care of her family, and then she, you know, well her her end wasn't happy, because um, she passed away of cancer in nineteen thirty. But
1: did she ever receive a posthumous PhD from Harvard? Did they ever award her one?
0: No, they did not. Is that a
1: no? Like they haven't? Nope. Oh. All right, so, like, you, and me, and, like, three of our other online friends, we've got to start a petition. <laughs> and I'll be like, you know, my best friend told me about this. We run a podcast. <laughs> when are you going to give her an honorary degree? I... And it's not even honorary, because she did the work. She did the fucking work. Yeah, she
0: did the fucking work.
1: You covered a young scientist who studied in Hawaii, who made some uh-huh. significant contributions. And she passed away young, and eventually, decades after the fact, the university acknowledged did. like the slight against her, and they were like, guys, we're sorry. Here, we'll name a day after her, but only every yeah. four years. And, he, yeah, no, it was, yeah. Be like, wait, what? Every, why not every year?
0: Why not every single year? Nope. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, she did not. I still, I don't see that she got her PhD ever. But she's on the Harvard Psychology website. Okay. Like what? Wow. Yeah, I don't. know. <laughs> they're like education, Harvard. Okay. Did she get the? Did, no, no. I I don't know. That's kind of like a salt in the wound situation where like you yeah. want to give her like how hard is it now? It's not like she's going anywhere with it. Yeah. No.
1: It's just <laughs> have like a nice little ceremony and yeah, looks good for you.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: that's a bummer. She didn't get her proper educational accolades. But, I mean, it sounds like she was still getting shit done.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. She she was starting the psychology journey for the nation alongside the father of American psychology. So, you know, yeah. Thank you. That's pretty awesome. And she was, she was accepted and she was regarded highly. There are some people who are like, nah, nah, bitch.
1: Some people are just buttholes. They had penis envy towards her
0: i think it's called vulva envy
1: either way their insecurities were showing well i'm glad though that didn't really stop her from pursuing her work and contributing to the field and growing it within the united states so now i know who mary culkins is so that's cool i like it i like learning
0: She's a cool lady. All
1: right. Well, as always, if you guys have made it this far, we really appreciate it. You guys are really awesome. And if you want to be more awesome, you can support us because we love being a listener supported. So you can hit up the PayPal button on our website and me and lot of people want to do that and see images of the people that we've covered and learn more about their work. Where can they
0: go? We have a website. That's myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook and an Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter handle is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. We have an email, info at MyFavoriteFeminist.com. And you can listen to us on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. It takes two seconds to rate, subscribe, give us a share. And in the comment section below, in any comment section below, you can go ahead and let us know what would you do with a giant chicken as a pet? I mean, I love omelets. Chicken. How many, like,
1: normal <laughs> eggs is the equivalent of one giant chicken egg?
0: You <laughs> have one free range <laughs> giant chicken. Like, that's. I might it. make an entire frittata. Mm. What, for like a family of six? <laughs> I can eat it. Also, frittatas are good. You can just put them in the fridge and eat them t- the next day. You don't have to eat it all there at you once. Go.
1: Yeah. No, you've got frittata for the entire week.
0: Um, frittata. Yeah, I would just enjoy my giant chicken eggs. I guess, yeah, I'd enjoy my giant chicken eggs. But I would I would keep him inside and love him or See, her. See,
1: eventually... Or them. I do want to have a few chickens. I have stipulations, though. It has to be pretty chickens. It has to be what chickens?
0: pretty chickens pretty chickens so I they have to be chickens. indoors no not
1: necessarily they just have to visually please me and be very pretty chickens
0: okay so yeah. this is the same thing you said to me about when you were gonna get a dog and you brought home a scruffy little shit i have <laughs> a very pretty scruffy <laughs> muppet i don't those two Gremlins things don't like go- a puppy <laughs> who is adorable your your dog is not visually pleasing. <laughs> no. His proportions are fine. He doesn't have a weird snuffed in face
1: or like shit little stubby <laughs> legs or anything. Your, your dog is, not he just... is a wonderful little
0: mutt. He's he is an average mutt that's sweet-ish when he wants he's, to be.
1: He's very sweet. He just doesn't like being picked up by a woman in a
0: unicorn onesie, okay? I just I I mean he should be used to it by now. <laughs> you should be used to it by now.
1: Oh my goodness! All right. Well, until next time, guys. We'll see you then. Bye.
0: Are you ready for this?
1: I think you're ready for this, John. My body
0: is. Bootylicious baby. Oh, 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 gosh. (laughs) Make it stop. (laughs) Make it stop. Get me
1: off this ride. (laughs)